This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 272, and we are recording on March 8th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Kim Eukera of the For Real Podcast, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Kim, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes. Uh, yeah. Amanda's on vacation, probably just nice. like rolling around with her dog. <laughs> nice. Oh, her dog is so adorable. I love it showing up on Instagram. Yes. I live for those stories. They're so good. Yes. But we I was super excited because we had just a ton of nonfiction questions. And so this was a nice excuse to get them all out. Yeah, it's fun. I We talked about like other genres to cover, but like nonfiction is where my like best recommendations come from, I think. Well, it works out well for everyone then. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's see. So before we get into our questions for today, if you are a new listener, welcome. This is, as we said at the top, a show for personalized reading recommendations, which means you can send in your own personalized reading request if you so desire. You can send those in to either getbooked at bookriot.com. Or you can drop them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes for uh, every episode. Those are on bookriot.com slash listen. And you can ask for a recommendation for yourself. Maybe you want one for a friend or a family member or a book club or a classroom or whatever. Uh, and we might pick your question to read on air and try to find you your next best read. If you're looking for feedback by a certain date, please put time sensitive, all caps, either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form and the date that you're hoping to hear back by. If we're not going to get to it on air, we might shoot you an email. So keep an eye out for those. And I think we're going to dive in. So I'm going to read our first question and then we'll take a pause and then we will start recommending. So this first question is from Riyadh, who says, I have been listening to science audiobooks with my son, seven years old, who has really been enjoying them. So far, we have listened to The Future of Humanity by Michio Kaku, Astrophysics for Young People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and we are currently listening to The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Anything else you can recommend? All the bonus points if it deals with robots, space, or is in any way speculative. All right, but before we get our recommendations on, let us take a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. 
it kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Kalyan Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. All right, Kim, uh, why don't you go first? What do you have for this uh, parent and seven-year-old to listen to? I love this question. Yes, I do too. I was so delighted by this. It sounds like such a fun thing to do. So uh, the book I want to recommend is Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void by Mary Roach. Uh, and Mary Roach is one of my very favorite science writers. And um, this book, Packing for Mars, is a book about the science around space travel. So the premise of the book is that space doesn't have many of the things that we as humans need to survive, stuff like air and gravity and water and fresh food and like the ability to commune with each other. <laughs> and so there are scientists looking at how much can humans really take when we don't have easy access to all of those things. And so what I love about Mary Roach is that men, all of her books are really like love letters to scientists who are doing super weird and super specific research in different areas. And so for this one, she looks at scientists studying bodily functions in space. Um, she looks at the kinds of tests that scientists do to try and answer questions about life in space because you can't really... It's hard to recreate the atmosphere or situ or like the, the conditions of space on Earth. And so how do they recreate those conditions in ways that can give them actionable data that they can use to then help astronauts and people who do that? Um, she looks at the psychological effects of being in space, about the training systems we have for astronauts, um, the use of cadavers in research instead of crash test dummies, which I think is really fascinating. And so what I love about these is that Mary Roach is really funny, and she's not afraid to ask weird questions and get weird answers, which I think makes this a fun book for a seven-year-old, right? Like, because they always ask all of these questions. And so she gives this really wide look at what being in space means for humans. Um, my one kind of warning for the recommendation is that there is a chapter about sex in space, which I don't think might not be appropriate for a seven-year-old. And so I would either skip that chapter uh, if you can, or she has many other books that might be really great options instead. So there's Gulp, which is about the digestive system, um, Spook, which is about the science around ghosts and the afterlife, and Grunt, which is about like science around the military. So those might be other options if the sex chapter is going to be a no-go for this one. But I really think the rest of it is so great that it's worth it. So Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void by Mary Roach. Yeah, Mary Roach has that sort of like fart joke sense of humor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Which is so appealing to the younger set as well as to the rest of us. So as adults, too, yeah. like I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, so my pick actually has an algae fart joke in it. Um, <laughs> 
It's Scatter, Adapt, and Remember by Annalene Newitz. And this takes a pretty grim but also relevant subject, which is mass extinctions in the, you know, geologic history of Earth and our current climate crisis and asks questions like, how could we survive a mass extinction, whether it's one that is caused by us or not? And Newitz is looking uh, not just at the science of climate change, which is like obviously very real, but also, you know, how have extinctions happened in the past? Because we're kind of the first species on Earth that has been able to impact it to this extent and also is aware of what's going on. So how did, you know, Earth and all of the inhabitants of Earth cope with it in previous times? How did they evolve? How did they adapt? How did they make it? Uh, And Newitz is looking for, you know, hope, basically, because this is a really scary topic. And I, I especially feel like for a kid in this day and age, you know, hearing all the news about the climate crisis, and I'm sure there's education going on whether it's in your household or at school, about, uh, you know, climate change and and pollution and species extinction. You know, this is, I think, some really nice context for how to approach thinking constructively about it and in a much bigger perspective than, you know, the zoomed-in hyper-focus, which we so often have, which is important. You know, I think both of these perspectives are important. I think it's important to note, you know, what our actions are doing in real time. But I also think it's, you know, and I think this is Newitz's thesis, that it's important to get the bigger picture in there as well. And then that gives us some ideas of how we can move forward depending on all of these different factors. And there are chapters in here about space. There's stuff about, like, how much do you need a body? Like, can we be cyborgs? (laughs) Um, And there's, you know, interesting data about that as well as, you know, stuff about Neanderthals and dinosaurs and all of these topics that, you know, you're your son is probably already familiar with to a certain extent. And so that will build on the knowledge that he already has, which is always fun. I was kind of skimming through because I'm not done reading this yet. I'm really enjoying it. And there was like references to sex uh, because, you know, especially in the chapter about Neanderthals, there's lots of theories about, you know, did Homo erectus and Neanderthals like merge or did they kill each other off? And so there's, you know, some references to sex in there. But otherwise, there's no there's nothing really graphic in here. Um, And I think, like I said, there are like algae fart jokes and and it's extremely (laughs) accessible. So I think it would be a great listen for the two of you. So, again, that Scatter, Adapt and Remember by Anna knew it. That's a great suggestion. That sounds super fun. Oh, yeah. I recommend it. I do. Cool. All right. So our second question comes from Brenna. She says, hello. I promise this isn't just a word problem in disguise, although it sort of feels that way. I used to have a very long commute to work over an hour each way, which made which I made more bearable by listening to nonfiction audiobooks. I now have a much, much shorter commute but miss listening to audiobooks. I use my local library's app, which allows audiobooks to be checked out for two weeks. Since I'm listening for less than an hour a day, I often can't finish the books that I borrow in time. Can you recommend some great nonfiction that's around 10 hours long? I really enjoy Oliver Sacks, Mary Roach, Michael Pollan, B. Wilson, Bill Bryson, and Brene Brown, but I've already listened to everything by those authors that's available. My favorite topics are social science, psychology, the natural world, and food slash cooking. I generally don't enjoy celebrity memoirs, self-help, and I'm firmly disinterested in sports. So this was a really fun one, too, because um, I have kind of the same experience. I used to have a commute and I listened to a lot of audiobooks and now I'm working from home because of the pandemic. And so my audiobook listening has really shifted. Mm. And so 
I listen to a lot of fiction on audio now, but on, on the nonfiction side, I've been leaning into essay collections because they're a little bit like listening to podcasts, I think. Like the chapters are about that long. And so you can kind of dip in and out of them and it doesn't feel like you're losing your place in the same way. So the one I want to recommend is Make It Scream, Make It Burn by Leslie Jameson, which is nine hours and three minutes long. And this was um, one of my very favorite essay collections that came out in 20, 2019. Um, it's kind of a mix of memoir and criticism and journalism all together, where she, quote, explores the oceanic depths of longing and the reverberations of obsession. And it's really fun because she has this huge range of topics that she covers. Um, there's one essay about children with past life memories. Uh, there's one about this whale named 52 Blue, who is supposed to be the loneliest whale in the world, oh. and the scientists who are studying <laughs> Blue 52. There's one about a museum that's full of the relics of broken relationships. And there's some chapters about her own feelings about becoming a stepmother and then a mother. Um, So they kind of range all over the place, but they have these kind of similar themes about longing and connection and that kind of thing that I really liked. And I really like Leslie Jameson because she is very good at like interrogating her own thoughts and feelings. And she's very astute in that way. And I like that. And she pulls in on these themes about connection and privilege and perspective in her work all over the place. And so I just, it's fun to like see how she thinks. And this essay collection kind of really grabs at a lot of those different things. So I think it'd be an interesting one to grab. So that's Make It Scream, Make It Burn by Leslie Jameson. I'm glad you picked that one because I loved The Empathy Exams, which was, Mm -hmm. I think, her first big publication. And I've been meaning to get to this one for, I guess, two years now. (laughs) Um, So it's nice to know that you recommend it. My pick for you is a little bit shorter. It's only six hours and seven minutes in audio, but I really loved it. And I'm assuming that 10 hours was kind of your maximum. So I picked Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars by Kate Green, which has some social science, some psychology and some NASA in it. It is a memoir by Green, who is a science journalist, and she gets tapped to be part of a six-person habitat simulation uh, located on Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Uh, They are simulating a Martian environment. They are putting the crew together for four months in this habitat uh, and then, you know, severing their connections with their family and friends. You know, they introduce a time lag for communications both to, you know, NASA headquarters and to family and friends to simulate what that would feel like. And they're doing, you know, they're asking these questions kind of like impacting for Mars, like what kind of food rations are conducive to good health in this kind of setting, in this long-term, very contained, isolated situation where you can't, you know, just go out and move around, but you're also not on a space station. You're on the planet's surface. So, like, how does that change things? And, you know, how do, how do the social dynamics work over a long period of time? How do moods shift and change with the cramped quarters? Like all of these things are asking lots and lots of questions. And Green is also thinking about her own family, her own marriage, um, what this mission does to her relationships with others, how it puts her in touch or disconnects her with others and with herself. And it's so thoughtful. Um, She's less snarky than Mary Roach, but she's also got a sense of humor and she's got a very light touch. And so I just feel like she tackles so many important and interesting and intense things, but it never feels really heavy, which for me has been a real 
blessing books that can do this over the past mm-hmm. year because I just don't have that much emotional energy for really heavy subject matter. But I want to learn things and I want to hear thoughtful and insightful, you know, information from smart people. So for me, this walked a really nice line and she reads it in audio. And I don't I don't audio because I, I just cannot absorb spoken information that way. But I always think that hearing something read by the author has got to be preferable to hearing somebody else interpret it. So that's always a nice bonus. So again, that's Once Upon a Time, I Lived on Mars by Kate Green. That sounds fascinating. I was putting it on my library holds list while you were talking. It sounds really good. It's so good. It's one of my top favorite nonfiction books of last year, honestly. Like it it was just it was such a such a blessing to read. Yeah. It, you know, over the course of the last year. Cause you know, isolation is a really real feeling right mm-hmm. now. Uh so it was very relatable as well. Uh and she is just a great writer. So our next question is from Lisa who says I was recently surprised when I noticed two books on different topics I was reading started to converge. One is Bregman's Humankind, A Hopeful History, and the other is McGonagall's The Joy of Movement. Despite their apparently dissimilar topics, social psychology and exercise, somehow these two books converged on the ideas that humans are built for connection and cooperation. And suddenly I know I need more of that. I want more of humans building relationships and working towards common goals. I've already read Smith's The Power of Meaning. And have Turquiel's The Power of Ritual on hold at the library. What else can you recommend? Fiction and nonfiction are both okay. All right, I've been talking for forever. Kim, what do you pick for this? This is a great question. Yeah, I feel the the need for books about connection. And it feels like they're coming up like more and more different places. And so I always am really happy about that because it's such a thing. I didn't realize I was missing until I started missing. You know what I mean? Missing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the one I want to suggest came out last year and it's called How We Show Up by Mia Birdsong. Oh, and I also wanted to say I loved The Power of Meaning. Like, that's a really great book, too, about kind of some of these ideas. So anyway, um, Mia Birdsong is an activist and writer who gives uh, part of her job is to give presentations to, like, executives and corporations and stuff around the country about connection and community and that kind of stuff. And so she opens the book by talking about how very often after she gives these presentations, there'll be a person who kind of waits and waits and kind of really wants to talk to her but feels kind of uncomfortable bringing it up in front of a crowd. And this person almost always will talk about how they feel disconnected and lonely, even though they are kind of following the path that the American dream sets out for you. Like they feel like they're on that path, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, and yet, supposed in quotes, right? Um, (laughs) But they still feel lonely and disconnected. And so her argument in the book is that it's not just... That the American dream is sort of fundamentally a flawed idea in the sense that it doesn't allow us to build these kind of connections and communities that we ought to and that we need to rethink kind of the whole idea of that and how we relate to each other. And so she looks at how, you know, injustices around race and class and gender and values and beliefs are separating us, but also the fact that we're kind of denying that we need each other and we need to belong and that the kind of push towards like a self-made person and independence is really detrimental to us in some big ways. And so instead of leaning into each other, we find ourselves kind of leaning away because we're uncomfortable with all these ideas. And so it's a a little bit of a critique of capitalism, but it's also just a look at how we can build community and how communities are formed in a system that doesn't always support 
or lend itself to doing that. And I I read this one last year, kind of in the middle of like COVID times and mm. feeling really disconnected and struggling with kind of what was happening in the election and everything. And I just felt really moved by the whole thing and sort of this idea that like, we don't have to be this way. We can rethink the way we approach community. We can be, we can be more connected to each other if we wanted to. And so it talks a lot about how we how we can do those things. So I thought it was really beautiful. I think it definitely fits with what you're looking for. So that is How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community by Mia Birdsong. Well, that's going on my list. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Okay, speaking of books that are my favorite nonfiction, this next book I'm so obsessed with. It just came out. I'm so excited to have an opportunity to recommend it so soon after it has come out. It's Northern Light by Kazim Ali. Uh, The subtitle is Power, Land, and the Memory of Water. And, oh, quick note, uh, because I am going to talk about this a bit, uh, it does include a discussion of suicide. So Ali is the child of South Asian migrants, and he had a very itinerant childhood. He and his family moved a lot. He was born in London, then they moved to Manitoba, then eventually they came to the United States. And he himself has felt very displaced in his life. He's queer. He's Muslim. Uh, He has lived in, you know, very white places, among other things. And so, you know, finding his place, his place, both in social settings and physically locating a place for himself has always been something that's been hard for him. And he finds himself sort of falling down this, you know, late night internet search rabbit hole, as one does, looking up a community called Genpeg, where he lived very briefly as a child because his father was working on an engineering project. They were building a dam and he was there for like maybe a year or so. But it felt to him like a really pivotal year. It was the year, you know, that he was learning to read uh, in English. He was, you know, really starting to feel connected to that physical place. He has all these wonderful memories of like running around in the skies and the trees and the, you know, it's, it's like a northern atmosphere. So very rural. And he has a lot of very fond memories of this place. And he reads this story that the local Pamichi Kamak community is facing a suicide epidemic of young people. Uh, And he just is so he didn't remember interacting with the Native community when he was there. And so he sort of is like starting to think like, well, why don't I remember interacting with that community? And like, what has happened to them? And is that town even still there? It looks like it's not like the town that he grew up in uh, for that year was basically disbanded after the dam building project was done. So he ends up going back to this place to try to relocate those childhood memories, but also to find out about the struggles that the Pamichi comic community is facing. And it's a really beautiful look at this very hard question of, yeah, how do we feel connected to each other? And how does displacement or, you know, feeling like an outsider feed into that? And then how do we like root ourselves even when we have those feelings? And how can we reach out to others across, you know, whatever the lines are? And it's just such a fascinating story. And the way that he tells it is beautifully done. He's a poet and an essayist. And I think you can really tell he has an incredible way with words. And I just, I mean, I found it so immersive. You feel like you're there with him going through this sort of confusion of like, (laughs) 
is my family, did my family contribute to harm to this community? What does it mean to me to go back and ask them about it? What can my presence, you know, can my presence help heal them in any way? Am I looking for healing? What am I looking for? So it's it, it really ends up being so much about what it means to be a community. And I just think it's amazing. I cannot wait for more people to read this book. It's short, too. It's not that long. So pick it up. Uh, again, that's Northern Light, Power, Land, and the Memory of Water by Kazim Ali. Oh, that's so good. I love memoirs by poets because they just have such yes. like you read and you just come across these perfect little sentences and mm. it's it's so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's great. That sounds awesome. All right. So question number four is from Noelle. She says, I'm 35 years old and single and have recently decided to explore the world of online dating. Bad idea. No, no need for details of bad experience, uh, <laughs> but it has created a need in me for a good female-powered memoir, preferably with a focus on body image. I've read a lot of the popular ones already, uh, as The Beauty Myth, Body Positive Power, The Body is Not an Apology, Men Explain Things to Me in books by Lindy West, Roxane Gay, Samantha Irby, and Jess Baker. I also just purchased Body Talk and have been reading an essay every morning. Any help with finding a good female strong and feel-good book would be greatly appreciated. All right. Um, so first of all, online dating, I feel you there. It is rough, um, but good for you. Good for you. All right. So the book I want to recommend is a little bit older. So I hope that it still holds up from when I first read it. Uh, and that is Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman by Anne Helen Peterson. And so this is a book, as the title suggests, about women who are nonconforming and unruly and who are in some way considered too much. And it looks at why the public both loves and loves to hate women who they put into these categories. So at the time, uh, Anne Helen Peterson was writing for BuzzFeed and doing a lot of like celebrity and cultural studies. And so she brings a lot of that to the book. So essays are about people like Serena Williams, who she writes about as being too strong, um, Nicki Minaj as being too slutty, Jennifer Weiner as being too loud, and Hillary Clinton as being too shrill. And so um, the reason that she uses like celebrities and politicians and like public figures is because she talks about how they embody ideology at work. And so they show the cultural expectations that are placed on women and how women either challenge them or have to conform to them in order to succeed in the arena that they are trying to succeed in. And so it's a nice book because it's very well structured, I think. Like every chapter kind of starts with a problem, looks at how the woman in the chapter balances that problem in the way that she does and how she kind of pushes against it and also tries to fit into some of those uh, stereotypes and molds and pressures that are being put on her. And so there's also a bit in the book about women who like don't, they decide not to try and balance the the pressure of these different things and how they get pushed out of like mainstream pop culture and conversation because they're too much and they're not pulled back into some like conforming way. But a lot of the, the essays are really about women kind of navigating in the middle. And um, the reason I wanted to suggest this one is because I always, when I'm like struggling with a problem, feel better when I read books about the world that show that it is as complicated and difficult yes. as it feels like it is. And you're like, yes, see, I was right. Like this is hard and it's really terrible. And so... I think, you know, the world of online dating sort of like forces you to kind of fit into certain conforming and stereotypes. And so understanding like how confining that be, but also that there are ways to push back against it and seeing how women are doing that in some ways, I think would be helpful. And that we can, even though some of this is terrible, like, and it sucks that we have to do it, we can do it anyway. So Mm. that's why I think this one might be a good for you. So that is Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman by Anne Helen Peterson. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, all right. I picked, I think, I I have never tried to say this title out loud, by the way. So we're we're just going to (laughs) take a stab at it. I think you say the hashtags. It's hashtag very fat, hashtag very brave by Nicole Byer. This is on my TBR. You probably, hopefully, know Nicole Byer from her hosting of Nailed It, the best (laughs) cooking reality show of ever next to Great British Bake Off. (laughs) She is so funny. She's extremely funny. And this cover is amazing. It's Bayer posing Mm -hmm. in a bikini and like a giant puffy coat with an amazing wig. And she's just like, she's so presently and amazingly herself. Um, She's incredible. So she is, as I have said like four times, she's a comedian. And this is her like, you know, sort of very funny joking guide to being hashtag very brave in that like you know she like when when you post a picture of yourself on instagram in a bikini and you are a fat woman it's like everybody's like oh my god you're so brave and she's just like i have no time for this let me (laughs) blow this up in your face so I, I thought you could maybe use a laugh. Um, and also, I am sure, because I have listened to uh, interviews with Nicole and, uh, you know, as well as seen her work on in various places, I am sure she is dropping amazing truths in this as well. And uh, And it just feels like the kind of book that will just make you feel like, you know, like pair it with a Lizzo song and like get out there and strut yourself and celebrate yourself and try not to let the haters get to you, uh, which is, oh, we all need those moments, right? We all need that support. So this is why I'm recommending it. I cannot wait for my library hold to, to come in on this. I think I'm going to really enjoy it. So again, that is hashtag very fat, hashtag very brave by Nicole Byer. Yeah, I love that cover. It's, <laughs> it's so You good. just see it and you're just like, yes, this is going to be so great. Yes. And apparently there's lots of other photos in there, too, which I'm just oh, like, nice. I'm dying to say. I can't wait. All right. So let's take another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes 
that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Our next question is from JJ, who says, I always thought I was straight, but recently I've been feeling more attraction towards women and NBs. I'm in a long-term relationship with a man who I love and adore and don't see that ending anytime soon. Basically, I'm struggling with my sexuality and have no good outlet to explore that now. Books have always been the thing I turn to when I'm trying to process important things. Please recommend adult books, preferably one fiction and one nonfiction, that center on women-loving women relationships and coming to terms with your sexuality. Bonus points for bi slash pan rep or NB rep, and bonus points for an older character, not a teen. I love contemporary and literary fiction, but would be open to a sci-fi fantasy. I have not been loving historical recently. So you are not alone, friend. This was like my story like five years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. So welcome. (laughs) I'm so glad (laughs) that you are wrote in. And yeah, books are always an amazing way to process feelings that you cannot process in real time for various reasons. So yes, welcome. Kim, what do you have for JJ? So I have a memoir that I have not quite finished reading yet, but I think that it like hits all of the things that you're looking for. So I'm recommending it with like the caveat that I have not finished it all the way. So hopefully it doesn't like turn off in a weird way by the end. But uh, the book is called The Fixed Stars by Molly Weisenberg. And so she's a writer who's written two previous books or two previous memoirs, one about starting a food blog after her father died and then about the meeting of her husband. And then the second memoir about opening a restaurant with him and what that was like. And this is a book about how she comes to discover that she actually is queer and decides to divorce her husband and try to explore life as a queer person. So it is about her changing identity, about how sexuality is more complicated than she initially thought it was and more complicated than she grew up thinking it was and kind of coming to terms with that. So the the kind of um, precipitating event of the book that sends her down this path is when she's 36, she is called for jury duty and she goes in and she is sitting in the jury box and kind of going through the voir dire process and finds herself drawn to a female attorney on the defense side, I believe. And she just cannot stop thinking about this person and it. She is in that she becomes part of the jury for the trial and just feels like seeing this person and the attraction she feels for her sort of like puts her just in a total spin. And so she tries to kind of deal with this herself and the trial ends and she thinks now that it's over, this will be fine. I can move on. No big deal. And she she can't. She keeps kind of replaying this over and over again. And she tells her husband about this like attraction and fixation she's having and they try to work through it and eventually decides that she really can't and she wants to kind of see what her life is like after divorce. And so it's about their coming to terms with that, um, about what divorce means for them as they're still really close and really good friends and they have a daughter together, about her coming after her friends and family in her late 30s, um, about co-parenting as she's trying to also like 
discover what it's like to be a queer person dating and finding another relationship and just how her ideas about love change after this event and after she decides that this is the kind of thing she wants to pursue. And um, I really love her writing style. It's very open. She's she's very aware of herself, which I think is important in a memoir, mm. like a being able to see yourself and see both like your good qualities and the places where you have where you have been flawed and I think she's really good at that and so I, it's a really beautifully done memoir and there's a lot in there about like what she knew and understood about gay people when she was a child and growing up and how that kind of changed over time and um, her relationships with her husband and um, the women she starts to see after they're separated. And uh, it's just fascinating. It's really good. So I, I think that it will resonate with what you have been experiencing. So uh, that is The Fixed Stars, a memoir by Molly Weisenberg. Nice. Yeah, I had a weirdly hard time with the fiction half of this question because there were a lot of there are tons of books about teenagers dealing with mm-hmm. this, but the ones about adults tend to either be more specifically lesbian or I just or they're just like they they knew as teenagers and now they're, you know, I don't know, they're having relationships in their adulthood. So I had I had a harder mm-hmm. time with this. But I I, and I know you said you didn't want historical, but here we are. This was the closest <laughs> I could get to every other aspect that you were asking for. So I'm recommending The Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows by Olivia Waite, which is a romance novel that I love. Please, I do not love the cover, FYI. Please ignore the cover if you don't also like it, because the book is so good. And it is historical, but I swear to you, I think the feelings are so on point for what you're interested in. It's about a woman named Agatha Griffin, who is a widow. She was happily married. Her husband has died, and she is in her mid to late 40s, and she's, you know, running the business. Um, This is all happening in, uh, I think it's pre-Regency or post-Regency, somewhere around Regency, but not exactly Regency, England. And she, so it's like she's already sort of an exceptional person, but she's making ends meet. And she finds out that in one of the printing shop warehouses, a bunch of bees have like invaded. And she's like, I, how do I get rid of these bees? Like, I don't have time for this. I'm very busy. You know, I have this teenage (laughs) son who's like running around in coffee shops, getting involved in politics. And like, I need him to run the shop and everybody has to listen to me. I have to do everything by myself. And now I have bees like, oh. And so she gets recommended to contact Penelope Flood, who is a beekeeper out in the countryside. Uh, And, you know, so she goes and she finds Penelope and she's like, get these bees out of my warehouse. Um, And they don't exactly have the best initial meeting. Agatha is very prickly. She's the waspish widow in question. Like she's very, she's very busy. She doesn't have time for any of this. And Penelope is like a very gentle, sort of sweet, relaxed soul. So they're, they're, they're a little bit opposite. But they start having a correspondence about these bees. And gradually, Agatha finds herself opening up and going beyond just this friendship. It is a slow burn. but they So they establish this friendship over correspondence, and then they start to spend more time together. And it quickly develops into more feelings, although it does not quickly develop into a relationship for all kinds of reasons. And it's a really beautiful look at, like, 
what does it mean to open up to somebody and to not be 100% sure of, like, what's going to happen next, which I think is a lot of that, like, fear of the unknown when you're starting to explore outside of your comfort zone. And their relationship is so beautifully developed. I love that it's not, like, an instant connection. And, like, the next thing you know, they're in bed together. Like, no, it takes time. They have to get to know each other. They have to overlook these weird things. And then there's all these circumstances, right? Because this is not exactly acceptable in history. But it's also not unknown. It's not uncommon. You just have to be careful about it in all of these very fraught ways. Um, And there are other things going on in the background. There's some really interesting, I think, historical politics taking place around the story. But to me, it was very nicely balanced. I didn't think it distracted. I thought it just lent more context to their relationship. And I just, I loved loved it. And I think uh, you will find some of those uh, feelings explorations. Agatha is aware of her attraction to women. She had like a very brief thing um, before she married her husband. So she is bi or pan, however you want to say it. She doesn't name it exactly. Um, But she does have trepidations around getting involved with Penelope. So there is a lot of exploration of that. So again, that's The Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows by Olivia Waite. That sounds really fun. And I love I love the title, Waspish Widow, and then having bee problems. Yes. That's that's so great. Romance novelists are the best at punny titles. Yeah, that's a really good one. That's great. Sounds good. So, all right. uh, Our next question is from Rodrigo. He says, I'm a computer science teacher in Mexico City. I've been teaching high school students about the science behind the magic of technology for about 15 years. I'm an avid reader, and I believe in the power of books in my students' academic lives. I'm looking for books about computer science or the history of computers to assign to them as extra activities for my class. So we have read books like The Code Book by Simon Singh, The Thrilling Adventures of Loveless and Babbage, A Beautiful Graphic Novel by Sidney Padua, Broadband by Claire Evans, The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly, and more. I would love to know if you have any recommendations for my students and me. Of course, there are extra points for books about women in tech and the power of diversity and inclusion, since we all need those messages every single day in our current world. Uh, this is a really good question, and I, I had to think about this one a little bit because a lot of the like straight computer science books I have read are by not by people of color, and I really mm-hmm. did want to recommend one by a person of color. So um, the book I settled on was Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change by Ellen Powell. And this is a memoir by a woman who made a name for herself in Silicon Valley and fought for equity inclusion after she did not find it there. So her her big um, move in that direction was to sue the powerful Silicon Valley venture capital firm that she worked for in 2015. And that suit really like rippled through the tech industry and made some big changes. So um, in the lawsuit against the venture capital firm that she worked for, she alleged this pattern of discrimination and retaliation against women and other minority groups in the tech industry. And although she didn't win the lawsuit, it had some uh, interesting and long-ranging effects. So um, in the memoir, she starts out kind of writing about her childhood, how she went to what she learned in college, how she started to kind of ascend in the tech industry and why she went the route of venture capital, and then how leaders in the industry tried to cut her out of finding success there. Um, One of her other big experiences was as the CEO of Reddit, where she, when she got there, she banned revenge porn and unauthorized nude photos, and she shut down parts of the site over online harassment, which was a really big deal at the time Mm. uh, and is very, I think, impactful over related to like the larger issues in tech that we're starting to learn a lot more about. And so um, since then, she's formed a nonprofit project, Include, that is working on accelerating diversity and inclusion in tech. Uh, And so this one isn't about computers exactly, but I thought it would be good for your students because it's about 
about the contemporary landscape of like the tech industry. And that's something that your students will eventually like become a part of in some way. And so getting a sense of like where it is now, where it has been, some of the big fights around diversity inclusion are, I think will kind of prepare them for entering in whatever way that they're going to do that. So that is Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change by Ellen Pau. I'm so glad you picked that one. I thought of it, but then I went looking for something else and forgot. So, <laughs> But you got it covered. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm picking one for you from my TBR. So this is a little bit on spec, but it seemed like a really good addition to what you've already read. And it's Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Umoja Noble. And this is super interesting to me because I was thinking back to what I knew. I mean, obviously, my generation... I remember before there were personal computers and like also before the Internet, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not surprising that I had no awareness as a teenager of exactly how not pure technology was like I had this conception that, you know, it was this blank slate that would just return me unbiased information. Um, like if I type a search into Google, I'm going to get raw data organized for me. But that's absolutely not true. And what this book is about is how algorithms, which are created by biased humans, not only reflect those biases, but can reinforce them, can make them even worse. Uh, So, you know, the way that Google presents searches for, you know, as an example that that Noble uses black girls versus white girls is extremely different. And it's not because the information is necessarily different. It's because how the information is organized and prioritized and ranked is different. And that's a really important thing, like critical literacy around how technology works, I think could not be more important for all of us to know about and understand, and especially teenagers who just are swimming in this and don't necessarily have the option to opt out or the, you know, impulse control, quite frankly. Um, Adults struggle with this. So I can only imagine what it must be like to be younger and to be just like not feel like you have any option but to be part of this all the time forever. I think it's really important for, for us all to know about this. And that's what Noble is looking at. So, you know, she's analyzing um, media searches. She's looking at paid online advertising. And she's exposing the, how how the culture of racism and sexism pervades search engines and what that means for us and how we can, you know, work against this. So again, that's Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Umoja Noble. I totally agree with you. I didn't. It's not until very recently that I really came to understand like algorithms and how they're not just pure math or something yeah. that doesn't have bias built into them and how like how the way we see the world is affected by the way that a tech company allows us to see it in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a super important topic. So that's a really good suggestion. Thanks. I can't wait to read it. (laughs) I hope it's good. (laughs) Sounds great. Uh, All right. Our last question is from Worried Daughter, who says, My mom has begun seeking therapy for chronic depression that I suspect has been with her for a while now. I'm glad she's seeking professional help, but I also wanted to get her a book to help lift her up a bit. From what she's confided in me, some of what is contributing to her depression is a lot of her identity is tied up in feeling needed slash useful as a mom. Now that both her daughters are grown, she thinks we don't need her anymore, entirely untrue, of course, and that she's not useful as a person. 
I'm wondering if there are any books out there about older women finding renewed sense of self or dealing with similar issues that she can see herself in. I'm hoping for something uplifting. She also has triggers around harm to children and sexual violence, so if those topics could be avoided, that would be great. Um, Worried Daughter, sending good thoughts to your mom. I think this is a very relatable and common problem, uh, and I hope that, yeah, things are going well for her. Um, Kim, what did you pick? Yes, of all the questions we had, this is the one that I struggled with the most, Um, and so I... I think that this is going to be a good recommendation, but I, I think you have to like check it out and make sure that it's going to work. So uh, the book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed by Lori Gottlieb. Uh, and so this is a book written by a therapist who starts going to therapy, and it is about her experiences being in therapy and also her experiences as a therapist with her patients. And so they're kind of precipitating event that starts out the book is that um, Gottlieb uh, is with a man and she believes that they're you know going to spend the rest of their lives together and then he very suddenly decides you know what I cannot deal with I don't want to be a dad to a young child again I, I don't think this relationship is working and breaks up with her very unexpectedly and so she has a really hard time processing this event and like what it means for her and so she decides that she needs to go see a therapist and so she um Finds a therapist who she describes as being straight out of therapist central casting, which I, which I think is really funny, and starts to try and talk with him about like why she's having such a hard time with this. And so I just I loved the way that she wrote about like her experiences as a patient, her experiences working with patients, and then bringing in a lot of information about how therapists do their work. Um, as someone who's been to therapy, like seeing that side of it a little bit was really fascinating to me. And so I think. Part of what's really moving about it is like even if her story doesn't resonate with you, the people, the patients that she's writing about have some very moving and like difficult but also really uplifting stories. So um, one of her patients is this self-absorbed Hollywood producer who just like comes in and talks about how dumb everyone is. And she finally gets him to kind of see like, no, you're really angry because you've had some things in your past that you need to process. There's a young woman who is a newlywed who gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so the it, this her story is about kind of coming to terms with the fact that she's not going to get to live the life that she expected. This older woman who comes in threatening, a senior citizen who comes in um, saying that she doesn't want to live anymore. And if Lori can't help convince her that there's something to live for, then she's not going to, which sounds very depressing, but it's actually a really lovely story as they get into it. And then a, a young woman who's like having a lot of problems finding the right partners for herself. And so I just, I loved those stories. I love the patients. You get really uh, invested in understanding, like, and seeing them have their breakthrough to finally mm. like work through the thing that's happening to them and watching L- Gottlieb herself kind of work through and come to understand why this breakup was such a difficult thing for her. And so I think my my, my caution is that if you're a person who is, really in therapy right now. I don't know if like stepping back and thinking about why therapy works and why therapists do their work is necessarily like the thing you're going to want to read potentially or that your mom is going to want to read. But I do really think it's a beautiful book. And I I like, I I read it with a group of women and we all took a lot out of it in different ways. So I think it's, it's a good book and I, I, I hope it's a good fit for what your mom needs right now. So that is maybe you should talk to someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed by Lori Gottlieb. I feel like that's a solid thought, especially for if you've never been in therapy before, sometimes having some context for what Mm -hmm. and like, oh, this is how other people are in therapy. Like that sounds that can be helpful, I think. I'm going to go. I'm going to take a slight detour. (laughs) 
And this is going to sound ridiculous. I'm going to recommend that y'all watch together the movie Book Club, which came out in 2018 and which back when this was a thing you could do and I had movie pass, my friend and I went to see it. It is the whitest movie ever, first of all. <laughs> but it's Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen as like older women who are reading Fifty Shades of Grey together for their book club. And like it is so funny. It's so funny. But it's also really interesting in a way because each woman is in a very different stage of her life, even though they are all around the same age. So one of them is like still kind of like playing the field and the other one is, you know, dealing with her daughters being grown and like constantly like feeling this push pull of like how involved should I be in their lives? One woman is trying to start dating again. The other one is like unhappy with where her marriage is at. So they're all in different life moments. And it's so, like, it's so sort of silly but also real about, you know, how it feels to be a woman of a certain age and moving through the world. And so it's just like, it's, you know, it's just silly, but it's also really lovely in some moments. And I think, I think she might enjoy it. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I don't even know. It, it really spoke to my inner 65-year-old. So that's all. Okay. So now for my book recommendation. This was this was uh, this is a tough question. And you know, I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to books to fiction. We have we have a bunch of lists that are about fiction starring older female characters in all kinds of different situations that I think you might also want to look through um if you were looking for something very just like fun and interesting and here's a, you know, woman detective or like whatever. Uh, but I wanted something that felt a little more that it would speak to that confusion and depression. And so I picked When Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams, which is such a beautiful book. It is it is very small. Like, it is literally kind of small. And they have a beautiful gift edition in paperback. Um, I'm, like, holding mine right now because it's so nice to touch. The paper quality is amazing. Um, and this is a sort of set of essays and meditations on what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a daughter, what it means to be a grown woman, and how do you find your voice, which seems to me to be part of your question. The context for this book is that Terry's mother died when her mother was in her 50s. And now Terry has reached the same age as her mother was when she passed. And she has been holding on to all of these journals. Her mother kept just like tons and tons and tons of journals. And Terry has all of them, but she has not been able to bring herself to look through them until now. So on this sort of moment, she decides she's going to look through them and they are all blank. And she is just shocked. Like, why does her mother have all of these blank journals? Like, why did she never write in any of them? And part of the context for this is that Terry and her family are Mormon. And it's very like Mormon, you know, journaling is like a whole thing. Um, so not only is it just weird that her mother would have tons of journals that she never wrote in, but also it's part of their, you know, religious culture. So like, what was going on here? And so it's Terry sort of kind of reconstruct maybe what her mother was thinking, thinking about her mother's life, um, what she knew about her mother, what her mother did and didn't reveal to people, and then her own life, you know, her childhood, her relationship with her mother, um, her marriage, like just moving through her life to the point where she is now 
older and like what does it mean to be a woman in the world and like yeah how do you find your voice how do you feel like you have a place like you know who you are and where you stand in the world which are really in you know hard questions um and terry is an amazing writer She's so thoughtful. She's so good with words. And there are moments of brightness, but it is also like this isn't super light, although it's it is short. So it's not like it doesn't drag, I don't think. But it it gets it digs into you, I guess, is what I'm saying. You feel it in your heart uh, as you read this book. But that might be a cathartic experience for your mom, which is why I picked it. I do want to make a note that chapter 31, which is like four pages long, all these chapters are very short, does include a description of uh, Terry dealing with an attempted assault. So your mom might just want to skip that chapter. Um, But otherwise, I think it, you know, it just gets to these questions so wonderfully and so thoughtfully. And, you know, Tempest Williams is such an amazing writer. So I feel like that could be uh, it's, you know, the the more serious companion to the movie book club uh, in a way. Um, So, again, that's When Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams. That's such a good pick. That book. I it makes me want to reread it, honestly, having having thought about it um, and picked it back up briefly for the show. So we'll see if I have time for that. Uh well, thank you, Kim, again for coming on. This was really fun. Thank you. Yeah, it was I love I love doing book recommendations. So it's fun to get an excuse to do more of them than just like the people in my life who casually ask about it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks also go out to our very excellent audio editor, Jen Zink. And thanks to you all for listening. If you would like more book recommendations, you can check out bookriot.com. You can also find our other podcasts, including Kim's for real, uh, at bookriot.com slash listen. And if you are so inclined, we would love for you to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show, which we super appreciate. And thanks go out to our sponsors for making this show possible. Kim, where can people find you? I am on Instagram and Twitter as at Kim the Dork. Such a good handle. <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> Uh, I am also on Instagram mostly these days as I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time. 